Today, I want to talk to you all about radical obedience. Um, I've done this message a couple of times now, and I found that the third time I do it is the best. So if you don't like it, this is the best I can do. Um, radical obedience requires preparation. It requires a willingness, and it requires trust. And then I th think it also invites for us an opportunity to correct our field of view, to ex sometimes to expand our field of view, sometimes to move our field of view. But, I, but what we see in Aaron and Kristen's story is a few different instances of radical obedience that they've been sharing with us the last few weeks. From my vantage point, each one of those instances was more radical than the next. The Bible is also full of these sorts of stories. When you look at the story of the birth of Jesus, you see radical obedience from Mary. You see radical obedience from Joseph. You see radical obedience from the wise men. It's pretty cool. And what about the disciples? They obey radically and they also do it quickly. As I was driving in uh, this morning, I live in Wyzetta, and so I was driving in on 12. Um, first I cut through Long Lake and then I got on 12 and the, and the fog was thick. And, and it, it occurred to me as I'm driving through this fog, how much more I enjoy driving when I can see everything. And and it made me think of you all and, and just how much more pleasant it is to live life when you can look back with confidence in the path that you've walked and look forward with confidence in the path that you have yet to walk. But maybe some of you are in a, in a, a season of fog. Some of you are finding yourselves in a moment when you can't really see with clarity behind you. You know, people are always like, well, just remember God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done in your past. And you're just like, it's so bad, it's hard to even remember that. And you look in front of you and, and, you, and you, can, you, can, you can keep moving forward, but you have no confidence that you're going in the right direction. As I was about to turn on to 12, I was actually about to turn on to County Road 6. I don't know if you're familiar with that intersection. I've probably been there more than a thousand times in my life. And I'm supposed to go straight to get on Highway 12. And I was so turned around because of the fog that I, like, I had to stop and slow down and like really pay attention to the signs. And I was like, I'm really supposed to go straight kind of into the belly of the beast there? And I was like, oh yeah, I have to get on a highway. What am I thinking? But there's just something about kind of the emotional, the spiritual, the physical fog that can come over us that can be really disorienting and can be really challenging. And so uh, I know that God is going to meet all of us where we are at as we uh, look to his word together today. But I just thought in particular, if you're in one of those seasons, that you, are, you are a part of billions of people who have joined God in the fog of their life, knowing that all they had was to take the one next or the second step in front of them and just keep moving and keep trusting and keep relying on God. And, and I, you know, I think in some ways, this, what, from what I understand from Aaron and Kristen's story, that's the season that they were in, where they just, they found themselves and they just had to keep trusting God and keep making one step after another and, and, and not knowing what the outcome would be. Um, so let me pray for us and then we're going to start to first look at the disciples and then some other people in God's story in the Bible. 
God, thank you for the Highlands Church. Um, thank you for placing them in this place, in this city, in this specific location in Delano, God, through so many different moves and so many different moments um, that we know you were present in and then all kinds of other things that you were orchestrating that we, that we really can't see from an earthly point of view. We're so grateful for all of the people that you have brought to this community. Highlands is so much more than a physical location, God. It is your people gathered together in your name, underneath your lordship and your power. And we are so, I'm so thankful for how many of them serve with, um, with great joy and with great humility and with great endurance, whether it's in the kids' ministries, adult ministries, or some other facet of what it means to extend your love and your presence into this world, God. I pray that you would speak to us through my words. God, I pray that even as my words might encourage and convict other people, God, that you would use them to even convert, encourage and convict me in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, I'm telling you, I, think, I don't even think I said amen at the first service. I just, I like, if you, you there's probably somebody still sitting here in, deep in prayer because I never said amen. But I did this time. Matthew 4, 18 through 22 says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brother, other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, there, there are a lot of different ways to read this story. But I think in general, you've got kind of two camps of people. One is like, wow, that's amazing. So cool. What an amazing example of faith and obedience. Radical obedience. I get it, Drew. And other people are like, are you kidding me? They just went off with a stranger and ditched their dad and left him to clean up the... Are they ever going to come back? And those other two jokers, they didn't even have a dad. They just leave the boat. Are there fish in the boat? Do they have supplies in the boat? And then they're just gone? It's a fascinating story. It's an incredible moment to begin the story of Jesus's ministry in the world as he gathers people to himself and proclaims the good news of the kingdom. If you want to obey radically like this, you need to be prepared. I think one of the things we overlook is how truly prepared Simon called Peter, Andrew, James, John, and even their father Zebedee certainly were for this kind of invitation. They were certainly prepared for this kind of invitation. See, it had been 400 years since God had spoke to his people, Israel, through the prophets. He had been silent to them for a period of 400 years. And they were used to regular communication with God. Most of the time that regular communication involved calling them out of idolatry, calling them out of kind of moral ambiguity, calling them out of like fitting into the world around them and copying the other nations around them and calling them back to God's presence, calling them back to right relationship with God. But there was another moment in the story of God's relationship with human beings in the Old Testament where he's silent. And guess how long he's silent for? He's silent with them for 400 years. 
And if, if you're wondering, well, that's, that, that may well be true, Drew, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these guys knew that story. I would say to you that that story is a story of when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and brings them into freedom. It was core to their understanding of who they were as God's people and what it means to be in relationship with God. They even celebrated it as a holiday every single year in a holiday called Passover. They would celebrate God speaking to his people after 400 years through Moses and bringing them from slavery to freedom and bringing them from slavery to God's presence. And the Israelites of um, Andrew and Simon and James and John and Zebedee's day believed that God was going to send someone like Moses, better than Moses, to bring them from their captivity to Rome and to bring them from their bondage to sin and death and to bring them into freedom. Now they filled in a lot of the gaps about who the Messiah was going to be and they got a lot of it wrong. But I mean, there's 400 years of hoping and dreaming and expecting and wondering. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever done something like that where like maybe you're going on vacation and you rented like an Airbnb and you, you know, you saw the six pictures and then you start to fill in around the six pictures and you never fill in with like, I bet there's going to be a stain over there. And, you know, I bet there'll be some, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, we just don't do that. We fill it in in a way to like meet our needs, right? Like if you have a little kid, you're going, oh, I bet you, I bet you what they're going to have is, is floors that are really easy to clean. They'll probably even have a high chair already loaded up because they know about my family. You just start to fill in around your needs. And so these people are looking at their specific situation and what God's Messiah, God's saving one will look like for them. But my point is just to say that these guys were ready for someone like Jesus to arrive on the scene. And there were a lot of other people that were ready for this too. So much so that there were some people who were like false messiahs. There was like a, a huge number of people who were, not a huge number, but like more than zero, less than 50, right? But a lot of people, I mean, we have no one coming around to our houses and going, I'm the messiah. I'm God's chosen one. I mean, have, has that ever happened to you? Like knock, knock, knock. That was happening more frequently than you could imagine in this moment of human history because Israel was prepared for God to do something. Israel was prepared for God to do something. And my question to you is, are you prepared to go where God is leading you? Are you prepared to hear what God might be saying to you? What do you know of God? What do you know of God's character? What do you know of God's plan? What do you know about what God thinks about you? If you are going to participate in radical obedience to God, it needs to start with being prepared. And this isn't like a, like a condemnation or, or even just like a, this isn't even like a hard sell to read your Bible, although that's one place you would go, right, to like become more aware of God's story in the world. More than anything, I think it's just an invitation to say God wants to resource you better than all of the other people in the world that are trying to resource you, that are trying to get your attention, that are trying to tell you what they think is true, that they're trying to tell you what is important, that are trying to tell you who you are. God cares way more than any advertising campaign that you could ever imagine that's going to pop up on your screen in telling you who you really are by helping you see who you are in relationship with him. So 
If you want to obey radically, it starts with preparation. Are you prepared? I'm going to skip the order up a little bit and skip over this, how big is your view, and go right away into um, willingness. So I want to say that um, radical obedience requires being prepared, it requires being willing, and it requires trust. And a lot of the times, it's going to invite us to change our field of view or to expand our field of view. Um, so the, my next question for you is, are you willing? Are you, are you willing to, to, to go where God is sending you? Are you willing to be called into where God is calling you into? I will be totally honest with you. When Aaron and Kristen told us that they were interested in interviewing to come back, one of my first thoughts was like, I would never do that. Like, I just, I don't have a field of view where in which I would say to God, like, like, I just, like, that door is closed. It's gone forever. Like, my wife is like, well, what if we'd broken up? I'm like, I'm sure we'd be broken up forever because I would never, there's never any chance of reconciliation when we were dating. You would have hurt me and I would have abandoned you, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I just, that's more my personality. I love that Aaron and Kristen had a field of view that allowed them to trust God and to take a risk, Right? And I just, I don't know if, I don't know how you, I've interacted with this story a lot and I've just thought, I never could have done that. I never would have done that. And it's, and it caused me to be sad. And, and I think one of the, one of my sadnesses is just, I don't know that I'm always willing to, to like throw myself out there. You know, I'm, I'm like a very cautious person. You know, I'm like sort of like test the ice. Like, is it solid? My son and I like to watch, um, this show about survival in Alaska and they like to say that the river will kill you and no one ever dies because they're all very cautious. But I'm just like, I get that. Be cautious. The river could kill you. You know, and so I'm just always testing, always testing. But there is just this moment where you have to say like, no, God, I am, I am willing. And, and no amount of preparation can get you through that moment. It can get you to that moment, but it, can get you, it can't get you through this moment. The disciples are obviously willing, Right? But there's this incredible cautionary tale in the, the book of Luke where Jesus is interacting with Jews in Judea and someone is prepared, but they're not willing. This is what it says in Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And this guy, verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Normally when I preach about this, I like to just kind of tease this guy. Like, there's no way. Come on. Honor your father and mother. We know you didn't do that. The rest of them, who knows? But we, for sure, we know you didn't do that. But for, for, the, for the purposes of what I want to talk about this morning, let's just give this guy the positive assumption that there's no ounce of pride in him at all. He's the most humble person you've ever met. And he sincerely has kept every single command. He is as prepared as you could possibly be to encounter God's Messiah, raise his hand and say, I am willing because I'm prepared. And then this is what it says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, this story is a lot more about wealth than it is about willingness. But at least today, this morning, we can see that his wealth 
is a barrier that keeps him from being willing, even though he's incredibly prepared. He's the most prepared person ever. He would never let the, the river in Alaska sweep him away. I mean, he just, he is ready for every eventuality. He knows what he wants to do and he knows what kind of relationship he wants to have with God. And he knows all these things about what it means to obey and to follow God. And so into that moment of incredible preparation, Jesus just simply asks him, are you willing? And he's not. And so his answer has to be no. And, and I, and I want to say to you, I, I personally think that the American church is a little bit more willing than we are prepared. But there's no substitute for that moment of willingness. There's no amount of preparation that can get you through that moment of willingness. There is that idea where you have to join Mary, the mother of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Joseph, his adoptive father, the wise men, the disciples, all of these people. And you have to say, God, I am willing for you to do what you want to do. I am willing to go where you are sending me to go. And here in the example of this rich young ruler, we see that you can be so prepared, but you might not be willing. So I would, I would encourage you as a practice to get up every morning and say, I am willing. Maybe write it, if, you, you know, if, you're a, every, if you're a twice a day toothbrusher, not everyone is, but if you are, you guys are, second service, you are. Put it on your mirror and just as you're brushing your teeth, just, I mean, in all seriousness, just, just look through your day, think about your day and go, am I willing for God to show up and would I say yes? And then, and then I, would, I would encourage you to, you know, Get, arrive at the point where you would be willing. That would be ideal. Um, and say, yeah, I am God. I am willing. And the thing that I would say to you, if you are willing to go where God is leading you, 2 Peter 1.3 says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Just like God gave us his own armor to battle evil and his own peace in the midst of our trouble, God wants to give us his own power to live the life that we were created to live. He gives us his own armor. He gives us his own peace. And he gives us his own power. The same power that raises Jesus from the dead is at work in us. And so as we are prepared and we say, yes, we're willing, God matches our willingness with what? All the resourcing we could ever possibly want or imagine. More than we could ever possibly want or imagine. Life is made up of choices and of steps, and God wants our lives to be made up of good or right next steps, but he never wants us to do it on our own. This is not a self-righteousness project. The rich young ruler did not leave Jesus' side with an assignment to prove to Jesus that he was worthy of God's love. He left sad because he couldn't say that he was willing. What do we know about the disciples? They're very willing and very ill-equipped. And what does God do with them? Think about this. 2,000 years later, in Minnesota, in the center of North America, we are here worshiping Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because God did through those disciples what they could have never done through themselves. Because God's own power is going to give us everything we need for a godly life. Radical obedience also requires trust. 
in tons of significant interactions with God that God has with his people, he tells them that he is trustworthy and he invites them to trust him. And then he proves to be trustworthy. And I believe that this is the pattern that God wants to use through all of his interactions with humans until Jesus comes back. He wants to tell you that he's trustworthy. He wants you to test him in that trustworthiness. He wants you to believe that he's trustworthy. And then he wants to prove it to you. He wants to tell you that he's trustworthy. He wants you to believe it with the way that you behave. And then he wants you to realize after, yeah, God keeps his promises. God is trustworthy. And the reason God wants to do that is because trustworthy is, isn't just a characteristic of God. It's who God is. Psalm 27, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. When God wants to introduce himself to people, one of the ways that he introduces himself, he says like, hi, I'm, I'm God, I'm trustworthy. And then one of the responses that we can have as humans is this response that the psalmist has in Psalm 20 verse 7. It says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We need not trust in our resources over and against the God who is always with us. We live in the most prosperous nation in the history of history. And so I think Psalm 20 verse 7 is even more important for us than it was for the king who originally wrote it. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. Saying some trust in their resources. Some trust in their technology. Chariots were a form of technology. But we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Why can he say that? Because of Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. Because of how God introduces himself to us. And because of who God reveals himself to be. When God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 34 verses 6 through 7, he makes clear that he is faithful and that he will keep his promises that Moses can trust him. Radical obedience requires preparation. It requires a willingness and it requires trust. One of the best places that we can go to grow in our trust is, is songs in church together. That's why we sing these songs. You're going to notice that in the songs that we sing, they're going, to, they're going to tell you things about who God is and what is true about God. They're going to sort of prepare you in a way. They're going to tell you that God can be trusted and they're going to invite you into that trust. And then in every one of these songs, at a certain point, the, the, the songwriters are going to find themselves overcome by the reality of who God is. And they're going to get to this point where they're going to go, I got to respond. And what is their response going to look like? It's going to look like them raising their hand and saying, God, I am willing. You have prepared me. You have proved to be trustworthy. And I am willing to obey you radically. This sermon, in some ways, is about celebrating the radical obedience that brought Aaron and Kristen back here um, to the Highlands. But it's also an invitation out of that story 
to grow into a people and for Aaron and Kristen to continue to grow as a couple and being people who are marked by radical obedience. How do we get there? We get there by allowing God to prepare us. We get there by realizing that God is someone that we can trust. And then ultimately we arrive at a place where we say, because of who you are, God, and because of what you've done, I am willing to be your person into the fog of the unknown, into the uncertainty of what's ahead. It's not clear to me, but I know that you are with me. And so that's all the clarity that I need. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to worship together as we end our time. God, thank you for being trustworthy to us. Thank you for the generosity of even introducing yourself to us as your rebellious and sinful creation. It's just a marvel that, that in, in the midst of our opposition to you, you would have still love us enough to say, I want, it, I want you to know me. And I want you to know who I really am and who I really am is, is a being, the being that you can trust, that is trustworthy, that will keep his promises. God, I have come to realize that that is who you are. Many of us in this room have come to realize that that is who you are. I pray, God, that the, all of us in this room would come to know that you are the trustworthy King of kings and Lord of lords, our heavenly Father. And that in the midst of that trust, you would prepare us so that we could be willing to go where you send us. So that we could be willing to hear new truths about who we are. So that we could be willing to hear new realities about uh, what you care about and what matters to you in the world. God, we want to be a church that is marked by radical obedience. And we know that we cannot do that apart from you. But you have given us your own power, which is all we need for godliness. And so we ask for that now. And we worship you in response to, to, the, to knowing that because you're trustworthy, you're going to say yes to that promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, for my soul longs and even faints for you. For here my heart is satisfied within your presence. I sing beneath the shadow 